art is a waste basket, where all these pieces where culture tries to define between pure and unpure ends up in the waste basket. And that's where we come. We stay there and we like it down there. <laughs> was Kristen Lemmertz and this is Nordic Portraits. Kristen Lemmertz is a sculptor, visual and performance artist who rose to prominence in the mid-1980s as a pivotal member of the Danish artist collective Vast, or Worst. He has since garnered widespread international recognition for his large-scale marble sculptures and installation work, often depicting religious iconography and exploring themes of death, existence and identity. He is the recipient of the coveted Torvalsen Medallion and a lifetime honorarium from the Danish National Art Council. Question... Welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you. Christian, I wondered if we could start by going back to the early 1980s when you arrived in Denmark to study at the Royal Academy and soon found yourself as an integral member of the art collective Vast. And I just wondered what you remember of that particular time in your life. I think a lot of hangovers, I guess, so. <laughs> when we had money. <laughs> But I mean, going to the... Art Academy in that time was much more like a tool to get a visa. Eh? But I mean, actually, my place was this kind of art collective, which was, I think, very anarchistic. And I mean, it's interesting that you come with your big ego in an art group and then it just gets destroyed. So it's a very healthy thing. This kind of close communities and normally never last very long. No? We can't be all of us rolling stones, you know, but I mean... <laughs> No, for us, yeah, but I don't know what I can say. When you're young, you know, you're the center of the world and these five people are surrounded by you are the center of the world and everybody is two years older than you is an asshole. It's very easy in that time. It was, you know, you don't have money, all the cliches, but we was lucky to get a studio of a place which should have been torn down, but it didn't get torn down for a long time. So, I mean, all the cliches was in place, you know. How do you select that group of people? Is it based on a common approach to the craft or was it more organic than that, just the result of the friendship circles you were mixing in at the time? No, it was actually pretty depressing because it was a really shitty group, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit random. You know? It was not like my big dream team, you know. I mean, the one was weaving some strange feathers and the other one was, I don't know, I think she did photography. <laughs> And then I was like three, four guys. In later perspective, it was a fantastic group because it was so not fit to be avant-garde because it was like everybody went different kind of ways. But we had a certain kind of ground rule that was we meet every day at 12 o'clock. Hmm. And just drink coffee, maybe get some silly ideas. But we had this ground rule, everybody have to meet up at 12 o'clock. And that was actually quite funny, you know, like, We did performance, we did exhibitions, We it was the time when, you know, the wild painting started in Germany and avant-garde in Italy and everybody suddenly, after this kind of long desert road of conceptual art from the 70s, suddenly everybody got fed up and everybody just said, okay, bad paintings are better than no paintings, you know. <laughs> so it was extremely free because, you know, like if you made a good painting, you was a bad painter. So everything was a little bit turned around, you know. And then we fused together with a punk movement here. And so we had this kind of old building. We made concerts and every big concert started that we just melted down the building's electricity, you know. I mean, because it was too much blocked in. So our concert was always like two hours late because somebody went out to buy the electric fuels no? <laughs> <laughs> without any money, you know. <laughs> But there was this kind of sense of, of a generation because, uh, you know, like it was a world without iPhones. It was a world without Facebook. It was a world where if you want to meet somebody, you go to a certain space. Yeah. 
then there was still a world where you, you know, like you, you put out flyers and stuff like that. So in that way, it was fun. Well, I'm interested if we go all the way back to your childhood, you were born and raised in Karlsruhe yeah. in southwestern Germany. At the tender age of 11, you were sent to a Jesuit boarding school. Yeah, yeah. How do you now reflect on those early years? And, and was art a part of that in terms of your parents introducing you to that world at a young age? No, it was like middle class bourgeoisie normally. And of course, so if you're middle class, you have to like museums. I think my father hated it. You know, My mother had to go with me to museums. <laughs> <laughs> but from my mother's side... We had some church sculptures, guys in the... No, no, but they tried a lot of times that I should choose something else, you know. At least being an art teacher, not just an artist, you know. <laughs> but in the end, they didn't oppose much. And actually, I was lucky that I got some money, at least for four years, to start in Italy. So I had some small money I could survive on, which is much more than a lot of my friends said, you know. And you were good at drawing at school, is that right? Yeah, also one of the few things I was good in it. Because I was really shitty in, in football. <laughs> All this kind of boys shit didn't interest me, you know. So Okay, then I went to martial arts and that helped me a little bit. Not getting beaten up too much, you know. So, but <laughs> no, drawing was my tool of survival. And it just interested me. From I was, I don't know, I can't remember. I always did draw. So did you complete your education there or did you just get out of there as soon as you could? No, I got thrown out. Luckily, with 16 or 17 and a half. I mean, it was like, if you talk about mobbing and all this kind of... Bullying. I wouldn't even go in, so what, what we... I said, okay, I said to my mother, I was the only one who didn't get sexual abuse because I was the most ugly one in the school. But I mean, <laughs> I mean it was a terrible school and beatings and I, mean, I would never allowed a child to go in a boarding school for whatever reasons. So I got thrown out with 16. So, And that was good. What did you get thrown out for? Um, not able to educate. There was something. It was, besides this person, you can't educate. It was... <laughs> it's quite a label. Yeah, well, you know, later you're quite, quite proud of it. You know? <laughs> in that time, I was a little bit, ooh, you know, because... Yeah. My father went to boarding school and so it was a thing, you know, they lost all the money during the Second World War. So for him, the boarding school thing was, you know, like an achievement. And I think he didn't like children in the long term. So. Hmm. so you find yourself moving to Carrara in Italy? Yeah, one and a half years later. Upon arriving there, how aware were you of the rich history that this region had in terms of art and sculpture yeah, prior to the Renaissance. I didn't know all this kind of stuff. I mean, I was interested in art, so I didn't know my Michelangelo, like my pocket knife. I mean, when I went to the academy, I didn't even went to the art historian lessons because I thought I know better than them. <laughs> no, it was, yeah, it was 17 and a half, you know. And, I mean, the reason why I ended up in Denmark was because I was another Danish artist who came to visit. I met him, and his name is Eric Franzen, and he wanted to make an art group, and that's actually the reason why I ended up in Denmark. I didn't know what Denmark is. I thought it was a country in Amsterdam. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, something with hash and blonde girls, you know, and butter and milk, you know, because... Eric had quite a profound influence on your life at that time. Would you say, is that fair? No, I mean, we had each other's influence, you know. But I mean, it's the reason why I ended up, you know. I remember when Eric said, you are the reason why I'm famous in Denmark. And I said, no, you're the reason why I'm not world famous. <laughs> <laughs> so in Carrara, from day one, were you learning the practical skills of sculpting? Yeah, yeah, it was a, but I mean, there was also a lot of, it was still a very political time. So the first half year, the professors were striking and the next half years, we were striking, <laughs> <laughs> but we had the keys so we could work. And then there were studios, you know, you could uh, rent a place in a professional marble studio and then you just learned it by copying and seeing and the old guys showed you some tricks, you know, so 
So, yeah, yeah, of course, you learned it, but on the other hand, you also just learned to be on your own. Mm. What was it about sculpting that first captured your interest? I really don't know. It's really the most silly idea I had in my life. You know? <laughs> you know, because it's, you know, like everything is easier than sculpting, you know. Even painting is easier than sculpting. You don't need fucking one block of marble, you know. Um, normally it's over 600 kilos just to start with. I mean, it's so shitty. And like a famous painter said, sculpture is something you fall over when you want to look at a painting. <laughs> it's not even very popular, you know. But is that the answer right there, that you love the struggle? No, because I'm way, way, way... I mean, no, no, I did really wrong because I'm actually very, very lazy. I can work, but I don't like to work. Actually, I'm much closer to drawings. It's much more... For me, the highest art is drawing, you know. Also, in terms of freedom, because I can take everything away, but a piece of paper and... Uh, pen you always can find and it can be the start for everything it can be start for a theater play can be start for a monument can be start for a movie i mean for me a piece of paper is still the absolute freedom you know hmm. so sculpture no, yeah i know what about the physicality of it yeah i liked it very much in the beginning because I mean you already have the feeling you work you know because if you're an artist you always have the feeling you're cheating you know <laughs> because I think I always define work like something you don't like in order to make a living you know and art was more or less something you, you like and then you're totally surprised that you also can pay your rent you know? <laughs> on a certain kind of stage for some people and then with your work in marble, it's very, very, it's, it's actually quite tough and it's very physical, you know. So that gave me the feeling I'm actually doing something. <laughs> hmm. From an outsider's perspective, it would appear that you need to be really meticulous in planning your work, given that the material itself is really heavy and cumbersome and in the case of marble, expensive. I presume one would need to think very carefully before every strike of the hammer. Does that take the spontaneity out of the process as an artist? No, I mean, look, there's different kind of ways of approaching, you know. There's certain kind of pieces, which are very complicated pieces, you know? but you actually have a, basically a model in plaster, one-to-one or maybe one-to-three. You know? Yeah. And you're actually working also with two uh, Adichanos. Also. Yeah, craftsmen. They're actually are very good in it, you know. So you're just basically copying it up and you just finish it at just gives it a fine touch. That's one way of doing it. I mean, I know a lot of marble sculptors who never, ever touch marble. I mean, Torvaldsen was not very known for... Basically, I don't think he ever touched a marble, you know. So he was only interested in making the master concept. Yeah, but I mean, you must also say, for example, in Torvaldsen's time, it was the idea, you know, and the other one was just a primitive labor. Hmm. So... It makes sense for a guy like his. Uh, Michelangelo is one of the few who really, we know he worked there. But the most, like Bernini or this guy, they had big workshops, 20, 40 people working, like a lot of the Chinese artists have in the moment, you know. So, I mean, I was in painting Rubens, you know, he only painted the naked women, but the landscape was somebody else who painted, no? It's a little bit like, you know, making movies, everybody has his part, you know, or making a record, you know, then you have a producer, you have a sound man, you have some musicians, but basically the musician do the smallest part, you know, on, on the last product. <laughs> so that said, would you consider yourself a good collaborator? No, um, yeah, but now I do it different, because also it just like, now it's changing a lot of things. Now comes the computers in, you know, and I did the first works entirely through computer, so I the work never, ever have been in my hands. But just worked with a program where I tried to cheat the computer so much that he actually creatively misunderstood my information, you know, <laughs> which is very nice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a computer, is fucking stupid. And then we just put this kind of information, 3D information through a big robot who can make seven angles, you know, and then I just stopped when I thought it was enough. And the fun part was that actually sometimes your handwriting can be boring or it can be like a 
for me it was for many years I thought it was like a bad smell I didn't like it so it was for me a way to cheat this kind of idea and create other works I would never have done it if I would have been doing it by hand or with some helpers you know so is the work you're referring to here La Parizioni? No, that is, uh, no, that's uh, VR. That, that's a VR. Uh, yeah. yeah, VR piece, you know, which I also liked because it's funny because it's, you have seen, you have been in VR? Yes. Provided? Yes. It's pretty funny. It's I mean, pretty amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I'm really interested as to what fascinates you about that. Is it the fact that people can experience your art on a more immersive level? You know, that's a fun thing about new art. I mean, most people have it with art as I have it with football, you know. They can drag me to a game and on a certain kind of extent, I think, oh, that was pretty interesting, you know. But I'm not getting a fan of it. And art also has this kind of really, really specialized... Uh, some people are interested in art. And for me, it's always like, should be like an offer. If you're interested, it's fine. If not you're not getting a worse person or more stupid person or less cultural person. It's just, you no. Know. But we have still this kind of fascination, like, you know, like the early movies had. There was Salvador Dali and Brunel, but it was together with Charlie Chaplin. And, you know, everything was like, you are in the birth of a media. Hmm. Where the media is still so interesting, even a drop of water would be as good as your art piece, you know. And that was very, very, I thought it was very good. Also because I, played a lot of video games and I thought that was this kind of new way of, of where visual art should go. Like, amaze the people. And at the same time, I had this feeling that VR gave you this possibility to understand that all in your head and all you think, it is illusion. And then you have this kind of Googles on and you see another illusion. I thought that would be reflective how much in the illusion world we live, you know, which is pretty much absolute. Mm. And that was reflected in the subject matter because you were depicting Christ in a crucifixion pose, but his appearance is not something that we've seen depicted in any way like that before. Yeah, well, I try to, uh, you know, because, I mean, the interesting thing with VR is it's not theater. It's not an installation. It's not movie. You know, it hasn't even found yet its form. And now it's mostly get used commercial for showing apartments and stuff like that. But as an art form, I haven't seen one convincing piece in the moment who just really create what, you know, like when the movie got invented, they tried to copy theater plays, you know, hmm. till they found out, oh, we can cut it. We can make totals and half totals and we can put music under, you know, I'm just imagine the first time when they showed a movie and then put music under and said, why, 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 why is this piano? When there's a locomotive driving past, you know, nobody thought about that. This is so stupid. <laughs> so um, I lost a little bit of interest. You know, I did like three, four pieces, I guess, which all of them was defined by different kind of illusions. One was a religious illusion. Mm -hmm. Then I had a nightmare piece and then I had a hypnotic piece. Did I do one more? I oh, know that one I haven't done yet. And that should be a public piece, you know, like a public illusion. <laughs> what will that be about? Oh, it's complicated. I won't <laughs> tell you <laughs> because the idea is so good. <laughs> <laughs> In 1994, you had your breakthrough solo show entitled Scene. Oh, yeah. Which comprised these blood smeared pig carcasses decomposing yeah, yeah, behind glass. I mean, the, the, the fun part of this piece, uh, first of all, it was for my homage from the 60s, you know, like Wiener Aktionistan. So I even didn't thought it should be a certain kind of problem because I have seen, I mean, it's art history, you know, but this guy was a little bit more tough than me, actually. You know. And actually I showed this stuff in Copenhagen and I actually got good reviews, you know. And then when I showed it in Jutland, you know, there was one of the more right-wing parties and he got upset. So actually I have to thank him for this kind of commercials, which I actually tried to do because he wanted to have me on a public discussion. And I said, yes, I want to come, but he must be prepared that I will kiss him out of love. He never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> I actually was quite happy because he was not the most beautiful looking man anyway. So. <laughs> Make love no war, you know. <laughs> 
But I was, I mean, I was amazed. It really came because suddenly, you know, like I have this kind of idea that Denmark in his roots actually hate art. I mean, like deeply hate art. I mean, mostly if people accept art, then it's supposed to be a little bit like kindergarten, you know, it should be like creative, nice, life-giving stuff. I think art is more or less, yeah. I think we are worse than people from, I don't know, like Fremarbeiter, no? what do you call it in English? The guys who are coming in, not Danish people want to work and live in... Foreign workers. Yeah, foreign workers. And I'm, I'm both in one time, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then it's very primitive. But I had a ball. Everybody was happy because a right-wing politician said, ah, we hate this guy. And somebody was defending me and everything. And suddenly it was a big scandal. And then basically also it was like pigs in aquariums. But I thought they're supposed to be small insects should eat. But obviously then the whole thing starts stinking. And, <laughs> and they wanted to fire the museum's director. And so it was like a long thing, you know. And I got death threats. But that time you didn't took that threats very seriously, you know. I mean, <laughs> but does that surprise you that people get so worked up about it? Yeah, yeah, totally. When totally was, I couldn't even see it. Basically, do you then get annoyed when people call you a, a provocateur? Oh, yeah, but it's a little bit old, no. I mean, but hey, okay. I mean, it's better than being a rock musician and have to play Angie every time you come to <laughs> do a concert. <laughs> <laughs> must be worse, you know. <laughs> it's interesting and it's funny that as a so-called avant-garde artist, you can actually end up in, yeah, was in BBC and CNN and it went all the way around, you know. But, you know, I never had this kind of social ambitions, you know. No, it was not annoying, but it was surprising. Do you have any underlying objective in terms of how you would want the viewer to react to your work? I think I had before. I don't have it anymore. I mean, now we're living in the worst time ever. Very interesting, but also the worst time. In old times, you had a censorship from the official channels. Now you have a censorship from everybody. I mean, you just say one word and then you get a shitstorm or you do something else and you have this cancel culture, you have jokes, uh, everybody get, I don't know. We are living in one of the most interesting times, but also in one of the worst times in order, for example, freedom of speech or humor or just normal anarchistic stupidity. <laughs> I mean, it's forbidden now, you know? I mean, in art, in that way, you know, before I did very provocative pieces, I wouldn't do them at the moment because, okay, how can I explain? Before I did pieces because... I thought you have to re-articulate what goes through the collective subconscious. You see a war and it's so far away, so you don't make a feeling. So I make war paintings to get it back to me, you know. It was like fighting the sunset back to you in a way, you know, like you see all this kind of kitschy sunset photos and said, no, I make the sunset. I can show there's still a sunset without the shitty photos, you know. There's still freedom without Coca-Cola. You know? hmm. But I think I failed. Oh, I was too arrogant. Now I want only to articulate something I really personally have experienced. When Corona started, I nearly made a diary from the start. In the beginning was Chinese people with face masks and then they got European people. <laughs> like a diary and then now with a war. But it also feels a little bit pornographic, so I don't want to do it anymore. But it was my way of working out these kind of problems. So do you then reflect back on your earlier work and feel that it somehow wasn't personal? I don't really know. I think just because now, it's also like a little bit of reflection. See? I mean, who I am to show people what's wrong and what's right, you know? I mean, when I see so much pointing finger art in the moment, and art actually, you know, people don't look at art. They read art and they want to read their opinion in it and then they want to judge it on their stupid reading, you know. Which I thought art is one of this kind of extreme anarchistic element in society. You know, yogurt have a culture. 
but yogurt doesn't have heart. <laughs> but people in the moment, they try to do art to culture, which is not, it's a free, you know, I will never know how good I am as an artist because you can't measure it. You know, it's not like a horse can run. Then you can measure this one horse is running faster than the other one, you know, and that, okay, this is the worst horse, that's a shitty horse. You can't measure art in any kind of terms. Okay, you can measure art, how much money it makes, but how long? Or you can measure art that, okay, he's very famous, but suddenly he's not famous anymore. So was he a good artist and now he's a bad artist? So, which was really annoying for me, but now I see it like a freedom. I mean, art has no quality. We never have. Hmm. So by extension, would you then say that there is no measurement for evaluating the success of your art, even on a personal level? It's depending who you are. I mean, that's why I now come back to your first question. It's like, do you think in terms of public? I try to be my best public. <laughs> but I found out when I don't care what this so-called arrogant thought, okay, ooh, I would make a pleaser or... On the other way around, you know, I want to do something people get provoked of. It feels shitty. You have to do what you do. And so, luckily, I don't have any kind of social ambition in any kind of surrounding, you know, because just imagine being famous. You can't walk on the street. It's not funny. <laughs> the only people you meet are boring people usually rich people, and you have to go to dinner with them. <laughs> I mean, imagine, you know, how you sit there with all these kind of rich people, and you oh, God, no, 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 no. So art, I don't know what art is, actually, but I can see it's going more and more, for me, it's more and more down to earth. It's about body, it's about what we are, and it's a reflection about my experiences, basically. Hmm. You mentioned earlier about the direction in which society is heading, where everyone is more or less living in their own echo chambers. What do you think the antidote to that is? And could art play a role in that? I don't think art doesn't play nothing. I mean, for example, in issues like, uh, oh, let's take an example of Bruce Lee have done for the Chinese people more than any kind of avant-garde art about that. Oh, now Chinese people are good. It's the same now with, I think, commercial action movies with a black superhero does more to fight racism and give new role models than any kind of fucking Shakespeare piece. Oh, I think, you know, I used to have this example where I said, okay, now I make an anti-fascistic theater play and I invite my fascistic friend in and he looks at it without falling to sleep. And he comes out and said, thank you, Christian. Now I'm not a fascist anymore. It would never, ever happen. People who go to political theater actually more or less agree with you. And if I want to be political, why the fuck I use a medium which is so small and specialized as whole audience as art? Nobody cares about art. You know, a homosexual football player and FC Core have a bigger impact for sexuality or acceptance of homosexuality and any kind of homosexual paint on that, oh, I'm a homosexual painter, I want to have my new museum. No, no. Is this experience talking? Is this years of you having wrestled with this over your own career? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's experience talking. No, I think we are living in the most interesting stuff, but of course, isn't that stupid that we still have to have female quotes in museums or in any kind of power situation, which I'm actually, I'm so radical, I go in for 100% quotes. I think no male should ever have a, a good job the next 10 years. And then everybody finds out, are women better? So we're better off. Are women just like male stupid and the same shit? Then we can put the quotes off again. I mean, because otherwise you never find out, you know. I think it's silly that especially Nordic countries where we had female liberation going on for 150 years and you still have problems in that issue, you know. But on the other hand, I'm dead tired about, you know, like you can kill everybody by just saying, 
oh, since back 45 years, you put your hand on my knee, you know. I know from experience how it feels like to be sexually molested very, 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 very strongly. And I can't remember the date. Ooh. So, no, I think it's very interesting. I think we are living, you know, like we have pandemic, we have wars again. And both of these parts are actually very important. Suddenly you experience that you take care about energy and put your washing machine at 12 o'clock midday instead of have like 20 lights on. And the pandemic was very good because I don't like hugging people. So for me, it was like the best. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody hugging me anymore. <laughs> But people was much more nicer in the supermarket than press queuing and all. And so it's interesting. And all this walk and cancel culture is also important. And of course, it will be extreme on the one side. And there will be very good positive effects, but there's also stupid people on the other side. And by the by, I think the few very gifted male people will survive. Like women survived under male society. So, Yeah. On another note question, are there any artists today whose work you look at that interests you? I like Picasso. What is it about Picasso? Because, I mean, it's like, yeah, man, that's also one of the guys that everybody's focusing on. He was like a fucking Spanish macho, you know, <laughs> and everybody focused about his so-called sexuality, uh, abusing women stuff. But I see some totally different kind of thing. For me, because it's like Einstein, there are some people who worked on a level of intelligence and life renewing way in so many years, you know. I mean, the most of Picasso's painting are so complicated. You need at least a half an hour just to understand what it is. Why, I must say, the problem with most art in the moment is people don't see art, they read it. There's a black guy and a white woman, and then they read what they want to do. You know? Which maybe in a Picasso painting was just because it was a nice contrast between two colors. I mean, a red doesn't, like Freud said, a cigar doesn't have to be a cigar. Or it can be a cigar. It doesn't have to be a penis symbol. And that's the freedom of art. I basically don't read art. But of course you can read art. But of course it's interesting if you see a fantastic portrait from the Renaissance. And if you get more deep in to find out who this asshole was. But it's not basically what interests me. For me, interested maybe how the eyes reflect to the background. Or how souverain. Something's not painted, who's supposed to be painted, you know. <laughs> And how the artist can make you focus on different kind of areas on the canvas without you even realizing it. It's a little bit like music. I can hear art. And my biggest, I think in the moment, my biggest ambitions, that would be making a painting or a drawing or a sculpture, like really it's the most coolest guitar riff in the world, you know. Duh, 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 or something like that, or Jimi Hendrix, or John Coltrane, you know, these long lines where you don't need explanation because mostly the lyrics are stupid. If you find out your, your favorite song and you finally understand the lyrics, you know, say, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter very much, but the feeling and the atmosphere is the important thing for me. And if you have the sensibility, For art, it's fine. If you don't, it's fine as well. Mm. You went away from sculpting for a long time. I'm just curious what brought you back to it. <sighs> Because now you have possibilities, like now you can enlarge things, you know. You couldn't do it before. So now I work in very small scales and then I enlarge it and then I rework it. It actually gives me back this kind of spontaneity. I can do in drawings and paintings, which I always thought was a problem because if you want to make large sculpture, you have to plan, you have to make a stable construction and you have to put clay on, it takes hours and then and a lot of time you can't change as I want. But now I can actually work with small pieces in wax, you know, like Rodin did actually. He never did big works by himself. He had like 10 people who enlarged for him. Do you have a team that work with you? No, never. No, no, no. Jesus, no. No, I have, when I do some bigger things, for example, in Italy, you know, then I go in the studio 
which I know some of the people, and then we do some stuff. But like fixed, no, 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 no. I had one time a guy who cleaned my studio, but didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) You strike me as someone who's quite content in their own company, somewhat of a solitary figure. I don't like people. But, I mean, it's different because now I have a family. I have a daughter in seven years and I have a wife. I mean, it's really silly to be an artist because if you're alone without a girlfriend and you spend eight hours in the studio, like, finding yourself, you know, and then you said, oh, now I have free time and then you can find yourself one time more. <laughs> it's a little bit better when you, you know, work in Lidl and after the eight hours, finally, you know, I can do what I want. But as an artist, you do always what you want. <laughs> For me, it was terrible. But in the moment, I, I have difficulties with people sometimes. So how has it been for you adjusting to having a child later in life? I think so. I mean, if I would have earlier, I would have left. I would just give all my money and then I'd say, see you again when you're 20. So for me, it was... No, I didn't like the first years. I thought, okay, you know, having a child the first two, three years, it's so boring. So if you ever think you are afraid of dying, get a child, because time will go so slowly. (laughs) (laughs) But now she's seven. Now, yeah, I have a daughter and a little friend. It's a small friend, you know. Mm. So now it's a joy. And it gives a certain kind of treatment in your life, you know, like school and stuff like that, which I actually enjoy. (laughs) I can't imagine that would have been a high priority for Christian Lemitz in the early 80s, arriving in Denmark, craving routine or a sense of rhythm. I wouldn't have understood it. (laughs) I mean, I never understand people get early. I mean, finally, they got a little bit grown up, you know. All the fun is away because now you have suddenly another thing you should care about instead of, meeting friends, going to bars and stuff like that. I mean, I understand when, like, lifespan was, like, from zero to 40, you know, then, okay, 20, you should get a child. But now we have a lifespan who's actually up to 80, something like that. So I think we should get a little bit later. (laughs) (laughs) Better for the child, better for us. Mm -hmm. Turning our attention back to your work, throughout many of your major projects, Christian, you depict various aspects of religious iconography. And I just wondered how much of that has to do with you being interested in faith and religion as a subject matter, or is it more just a nod to what has come before you, particularly in regards to the masters of the Renaissance? I mean, you open a newspaper and you see some war photos, you know. How many pietas you see and how many Jesus Christ you see? I mean, the Western iconography is based on three, four big themes. And this shows that you can do a lot of things with it. If they're especially religious, I don't think so, actually. I always hate religious in the way that say, oh, without us, you wouldn't love your child. Fuck you, you know? I mean, oh, without us, you would not take care about your friends. I think we took care of our children before you came, and we also found out that we actually have to work together before you came. You just made the whole thing a little bit more boring. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Come on. I mean, what is it still, you know, like in the moment with all this sexuality, said, okay, you don't know which sex you are. So what is your problem? I mean, sorry. I have lived most of my life outside of my own language. Is that my problem? No, actually, it's actually freedom. I mean, if I don't know which sex I have, I have two toilets instead of one toilet. You know, If you're living on a borderline between Denmark and Germany and that, oh, I don't know if I'm Danish or I'm German. Stupid you. You speak two languages. You can choose what you want. It's actually much more fun. <laughs> so obviously your description of religion is one of being restrictive But your work, your imagery is this opportunity to push up against and challenge these religious traditions, right? Yeah, of course, it has to be. Of course, because, I mean, I started like for over a year Chinese calligraphy, you know, and it's a totally different kind of issues. But in the end, you end up in the same thing. 
I mean, what is clean and what is dirty. And I mean, in a way, you know, a society is always defined about clean and dirty. And in German, you say, Abfall, Einfall, Auffall. No? <laughs> so you can, you know, like culture always tries to put things, you know, like an animal get cut up in pieces and then you have a steak with a nice square plastic six. And then if you can't use it anymore, it ends up in the wastebasket, you know. And art is a wastebasket. Where all these pieces, where culture tries to define between pure and unpure, ends up in the wastebasket. And that's where we come. We stay there and we like it down there. <laughs> <laughs> you do enjoy exploring that duality of the beautiful and the ugly or grotesque through your work. Would you agree? No, because there's no definition about ugliness or beauty. I mean, it's so difficult to see. I mean, it's like, have you seen it by yourself? You know, I mean, I can remember when we saw a guy with a beard and we were laughing and then one and a half years later, everybody had a beard, you know, <laughs> and then now they don't have beards anymore, you know. Before you thought, oh, a male with a beard is an asshole. And suddenly, if you don't have a beard, you're an asshole. And then, so, what is beauty, you know? I mean, just imagine, for example, it's interesting that the female role model of a beautiful body changed totally. Also, like, every hundred years, now maybe every ten years. But while the male role model of beauty haven't changed since the fucking beginning, you know? Right shoulders... But it's not like, oh, now you have a big ass, now you have a small ass. And now <laughs> it's still the same. You can see a Egyptian sculpture and say, well, it looks a little bit like a Greek sculpture. It looks, okay, it can be a little bit more on Schwarzenegger, of course. But apart from the muscles, it's more or less the same. Where women can be small breasts, big breasts, thin like a stick, whatever, you know. Poor women, so never know. <laughs> I think to some of your seminal sculptural works, one of them being The Last God, which mm. is a three and a half meter high bronze statue placed at the front of Bispabia Hospital, depicting a resurrected Lazarus. Oh, yeah. That's kind of funny, right? Yeah, it was actually, you know, you know, the most iconic sculpture. That's, you know, like all the big iconic sculpture in our culture are bad. For example, Torvalds and Jesus Christ, you know. It's not a really good sculpture, I'm sorry. And his hands are looking like shit. And, and you know, like New York's, uh, what do you call Liberty stuff? Yeah, Statue of Liberty. Yeah. Or the worst thing in the whole, I mean, imagine how many millions of tourists went to the Little Mermaid and got frustrated. <laughs> I mean... There's not even one person. No, I didn't know it was so small. <laughs> I mean, it's the biggest frustration for every fucking tourist, you know, that coming all the way from China and then you go there and that, oh, I, I nearly passed it, you know, I mean. So all this kind of super famous sculptures here, really big, big, big. <laughs> but that one I wanted to do, you know, then I was so angry about the sculpture of Torvalds and I said, I can do it better. And then I will do it naked. And actually, there are still some versions where Lazarus still have a vagina. <laughs> because, you know, the problem is, how big you make a fucking penis? Because if the penis is getting too big, you don't have a sculpture anymore. No? If the penis is getting too small, they laugh at you. <laughs> so you were giving him a vagina for a point of time? Yeah, first I gave him a vagina. But it looked also ridiculous. So I gave him an okay penis, you know. <laughs> But it's really story. I mean, sculptures and sexuality, it's difficult. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Michelangelo's David, if you see his penis, you know, it's smaller than the one part of his little finger, pinky. So I read one time an article about a feminist American art historian. She said, he was just afraid when he saw Goliath. <laughs> yeah, Goliath. <laughs> so he shaked his penis. It's good for you. But I said, on some, by the by, but she never, she never really understood. Okay, if you make a sculpture of David, which should put a small man, but he's five and a half meters high. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it, but if we also look at something like the undead, this marble sculpture you created depicting Michael Jackson. Oh. Headless, holding his own head in his hands, performing fellatio on himself. It was this kind of masturbation idea I had about Michael Jackson because he was so artificial as a person, you know, a black person who wanted to be white. So I made actually this angel was next to him. It was Michael Jackson as a little child, you know, as a white angel. <laughs> and I thought this whole issue in that time. So I tried to combine actually a kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger with Michael Jackson and I tried to combine this kind of rhythm. I thought like, Repeating, putting up your muscles is like a masturbation movement. So at the same time, I wanted them to be like ever going zombie machine, you know. So it was a little bit like that. But it actually was, the idea was once I was in Geneva and I ended up in a bad neighborhood and there were some black people who actually threatened my life. And in a way of coming out of the story, I said, but you can't rob me. I'm an artist. And they said, oh, what instrument you're playing? They said, no, 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 no. I make black people in white marble. Oh, respect. <laughs> Good go. <laughs> Is that so? Yeah. <laughs> Funny story. So. so this would suggest that your artistic process is not impervious to what's happening in today's culture. I know you've mentioned you're on a journey of making work that's increasingly personal, but you're obviously not afraid to incorporate current affairs and cultural criticism into your work, if you look at Otoya. Yeah, of course. It's like a, you know, it's a little bit like self-defense, you know. I mean, we're living in the most visual area. I think Sean Kierkegaard, he would just collapse because he would never see so many stuff. No? But at the same time, the most blind area because photography overtook everything. And illusion takes, I think there's a different way of seeing which can be reflected by art. And there's one thing, like, there's a lot of artists that just take, like, photography and stuff like that, and then they just copy it over, but it's not the right way of seeing. You never, I mean, if I look at you, I don't see the background blurred. No, then I focus on the background, and it will be sharp, and I focus back, and I focus up and down, all the kind of stuff. You know, like, that's really, that's why I like Picasso, because there's, there's so much stories about him, but all the stories, even if they're not right, you know, they still say something. So, for example, one woman asked, her, why, Maestro Picasso, you paint two eyes and a big nose on the one side of the face and the mouth is something up? Is that you ever kiss somebody with open eyes? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, I mean. So maybe he tried to explore sensitivity, you know, and it's also very humoristic. No? Sure. Okay. No. So after all these years, question and the highs and lows and reevaluation, what still drives you to do the work? Because I get stupid, I don't work. I think it's like life is so tedious, but I need stuff to do for not falling asleep. That's what everybody should do. Does it still give you a thrill? It makes me a better person, at least. If I don't paint one day, like the last three, four days, because of all kind of stuff, you know, I'm getting more and more stupid. People don't like me. Or get sentimental. And, last night, you know, I had so stupid dreams. So then I woke up depressed, but I said, okay, my dreams was more depressed than I was. <laughs> <laughs> and art, you know, for me, art gives me a certain kind of uh, self-worth. Yeah, gives you a certain kind of identity. And I never felt more as an artist. Also because I feel more and more it's about the hand and the mind and the connection between this stuff. It's not about the ideas, you know. I mean, poor conceptual artist because if you get an idea, you can be sure that at least 10,000 people had it before you. So I always said, okay, if you want to be a conceptual artist, Google <laughs> and find out if this idea is not totally used, you know. But they can't take away your hand. They can't take your way of drawing away, you know. They can't copy it in the same way. That's why I think 
my art is going more and more in a primitive way of it's about the body and it's about who we are. And for me, a drawing is like a frozen music, a diary in time. Mm. Just as we draw to a close, what are your reflections, Christian, when you look back on your own body of work? Oh, embarrassment. Do you know, I have some friends and each time they see your old work, you know, they are so fucking proud. I didn't know I was that good. And I have it more like Samuel Beckett, you know, fail better next time, you know. <laughs> I never had this kind of, and I, I really don't care. I mean, I'm not a collector, so I don't care what happens to my work, actually, because when the work is done, it's also kind of over, you know. But sometimes I see some stupid old works and it takes me like a minute before I recognize it's my own. And then I actually said, wow, it's not that bad. <laughs> then I find out, oh, it's my work. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Did your parents live long enough to see the great successes of your career? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got old. But they didn't like. No, it was not important for them. I mean, I met fucking the Queen here, and they don't know where the Queen is in Germany. You know, so it's a little pity for them. They would be so proud if it would be danged. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, my parents were very eccentric, so I think they were more busy with themselves, so it's okay. <laughs> Just finally, question given all the success you've had and this journey that you've been on with reassessing art and its role in society and your place within it. If you were to share your thoughts with a young artist, what's one piece of advice you'd offer them? Oi. Fail. It's the power of failure. Make all the mistakes. Because success is not good. I don't know. Ah, you couldn't. Don't, don't give advice to people. Just don't. I'm guessing when you were a young artist, you wouldn't have listened anyways. Oh, man, you know this kind of famous Argentine writer called Borges? And there's a short story when he goes passing by the park and he sees his younger self sitting on a park bench. And he said, now I'm sitting right next to him. I'm giving some tips for the younger self. He didn't even want to listen to him. He thought he was just an old ass. <laughs> it's a very nice story. <laughs> you meet yourself. So, no, please listen. <laughs> so failed, failed again, or failed better next time. Yeah. Hmm. Question Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story and your honest reflections with us today. Okay. Thank you. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season, visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.